Well, after about a uh, four-month break that we took in digging into a particular book of the Bible and, and just studying all the way through from beginning to end, we are back at it uh, this morning. Back in June, we brought to a close our, our five-and-a-half-year study in uh, the biography of Jesus' life written by his good friend Matthew, just taking a slow look at who Jesus was and what he did and what he taught and what that means for us. Um, And this morning, having brought that to a close, this morning we are beginning a brand new series in uh, a letter written by Jesus' brother named James. If Matthew is describing the life of Jesus, uh, James is taking the book of Matthew and everything that Jesus taught and thinking through what does it mean for a church, a community of people who who are all committed to uh, living a life of following Jesus, what does it look like for that community to live out the teachings of Jesus um, together? Because James, you need to understand, James was the brother of Jesus, but James never actually believed Jesus' message during Jesus' lifetime. In fact, there's, there's a funny story in the biography of Jesus written by Mark where uh, it says Jesus' family heard about the things that Jesus was doing, the things that Jesus was teaching and saying about himself and God and life and whatever. And it says that they all got together and they left their home and they traveled to where Jesus was because their plan was to collect him because Mark says they thought he was out of his mind. Uh, James literally thought Jesus was crazy for the things that he was teaching in his lifetime. But then... Uh, sometime after Jesus' death and resurrection, it says that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appeared directly to James. And you have to think that somewhere in that encounter, seeing his brother raised from the dead, James came to believe that Jesus was speaking the truth about everything that he taught and he put his faith in Jesus and James actually became the very first pastor of the very first church in Christian history, the church in Jerusalem. It was a community that he pastored for the better part of 30 years. He was widely respected and acknowledged in the first decades of Christian history as a pillar of the church, one of the foundations on which the whole community rested. Somebody who was considered to be wise and insightful in terms of understanding the teachings of Jesus, someone who was unafraid to speak the truth in love, but who was loving and hospitable and open and generous and humble in the way that he led the community. And the letter that James wrote is a letter that he wrote to his uh, people from the Jerusalem church after the trouble began. In Acts chapter 8 verse 1, it talks about a persecution that settled into the church after the the death, the public execution of one of their leaders, a guy named Stephen who was stoned to death because of how he was speaking about Jesus in public. And it says in Acts chapter 8 verse 1, on the day, on that day where Stephen died, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. 
And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea, the the province that Jerusalem is in, and Samaria, the province just to the north. It says, Saul uh, began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them into prison. Um, The church all of a sudden finds itself undergoing this intense persecution that has been unleashed on their community. People who own home and lands and farms are finding their property being stripped away from them in the courts because of their faith in Jesus. They become victims of verbal uh, assault and violence, physical violence, to the point where it gets so intense that many of them, most of them, actually have to flee the city of Jerusalem, just sort of drop their whole life and literally run for their lives, leave the city, leave the province. Many of them even left the country, scattering in places like Lebanon and Syria and Turkey, just hoping to avoid being hunted down and imprisoned and maybe even killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And now here they are, living in a foreign country, in a strange land with a strange language that they don't speak. Everyone's a stranger. They don't have family. They don't have any resources to fall back on. Having to hire themselves out for menial work just to put food on the table. Being discriminated against in hiring practices. Being exploited in their labor. Being underpaid because of their faith in Jesus Christ. You have to think about the Syrian physician who grabs her family and leaves everything else behind and they come to Canada with just the clothes on their backs and now she's driving taxi in Hamilton, barely speaks the language, but doing whatever she can just to put food on the table, but still afraid that someone is going to come and get her and take her back to Syria with her kids. Right? This is the fear and the trauma that this community was experiencing. Never mind the fact that just in that part of the world during those decades, there was a series of famines that just made it hard on everybody. People were having a hard time finding work and finding food. And um, people who had farms were having to remortgage the farms at exorbitant interest rates. And some of them were being foreclosed on. And some of them were having to sell to the rich buyers for pennies on the dollar. Everybody was struggling. And this is the community that James is writing to in his letter in James chapter 1. And this is how he chooses to begin his letter. Starting at verse 1, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes, to the people of God, to the church, scattered among the nations. Greetings. And then this is the first thing he says. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Consider it pure joy to be living through the garbage that you're living through right now. That's what he means by trials of many kinds. The word trial in Greek actually is the word for testing. In in a sense, it's kind of um, having the screws put to you. 
in a way that actually tests the metal of your character, that puts to a test who you really are. Circumstances that are so hard and so intense that, that your character is being exposed by the way that you respond. He says, I know that you're facing trials. The word facing is a far too mild English translation. The Greek word actually refers to um, a person who is running in a particular direction and suddenly crashes into a sudden unexpected obstacle. It's being confronted immediately and crashing into this wall. It's a word that's sometimes used by people who are surrounded by robbers, who fall into the hands of muggers. James says, I know that you're being mugged by life right now. You're being mugged by your circumstances that are putting the screws to you and are testing the metal of your very character. And it's not just persecution. James says trials of many kinds. I know that it's not just the violence and the verbal assault and the, and the loss of your wealth and the loss of your home and the loss of your family. I know that it's just life does that sometimes in sickness and sadness and um, disability and disappointment and failure. Sometimes life just puts the screws to you in a way that is... Um, almost beyond what you can bear. And James says, when you find yourself in those kinds of circumstances, brothers and sisters, he says, consider it pure joy. What the heck? Like imagine you make a, you know, a meeting, you schedule a meeting with one of our location pastors because your life has just gotten so heavy and you need to talk to someone about it. And so you call them up and you get in their office and you sit down to chat with them and you just between sobs, you say to them, listen, I need you to know I've just received this terrible diagnosis. And your location pastor looks at you with a big smile on their face and says, that is amazing. High five. Up top, right? Like, what the heck are you talking about? Consider it pure joy. Now, James isn't saying, enjoy it. Find enjoyment in going through the sort of seasons in life when you're getting mugged by your circumstances and life is putting the screws to you and your very character is being tested. He's not saying, hey, you should enjoy that. It's not. We don't. Nobody enjoys that. In fact, if you go read through the book of Psalms, which is a series of prayers and songs that people write about their relationship with God, like two-thirds of them are people complaining to God about how much their life sucks and begging God to intervene and make it better and make it go away. Nobody loves it. He's not saying you should enjoy it when you're going through these tests and trials of many kinds. What he's saying is you need to change your perspective and joyfully anticipate the opportunity that these seasons in life present you. Now that is a completely different way of thinking about difficult times than we generally, than I generally default to. Right? We believe 
in our life. We've been groomed by our culture, which is a pursuit of happiness kind of culture. We've been groomed by our culture to believe that the purpose of life is to pursue happiness, to experience health and wealth with my spouse and 2.4 kids and my white picket fence doing meaningful work and enjoying uh, in, you know, fun recreation. That The purpose of life is to live a pain-free, comfortable, easy life that I can enjoy to pursue happiness, right? The root of the word happiness is the same as the root for the word happens. Our happiness is found in what happens to us. And so we pursue a life filled with circumstances that, are, that make our lives pain-free and comfortable and easy so that we can be happy in our life. And, and therefore, we've been taught by our culture to be revolted by and to revolt against everything that interrupts our happiness. To reject and revolt against every form of dis-ease. Everything that makes our life uneasy. Loneliness, disappointment, failure, sadness, grief, loss. We've actually perfected in the Western world this mentality so thoroughly that we've even taught the gospel, the good news about Jesus, to reflect this belief. That what God wants for us is to be healthy and wealthy and uh, married and have children and enjoy our lives as his blessing for faithfully following Jesus with all of our life. It's not true. That's not what the gospel preaches. In fact, that's a heresy called the prosperity gospel. And I think many of us who have been following Jesus for some time would deny that we believe that God's will for our life is to be healthy and wealthy all of the time. And then the very second we're not healthy or wealthy, we do one of two things. We either get mad at God for disappointing us and letting us down, or we get mad at ourselves for being such failures at following Jesus that God is punishing us instead of blessing us. And none of that is true. Truth be told, we have to change the way that we think about pain and suffering in our life. It is true. That this is what the Bible teaches, that God has created us to experience peace and wholeness and harmony and abundance in our relationship with God and in our relationship with ourselves and in our relationship with, the, with each other and in our relationship with the world. And sin has wrecked it. Sin has distorted and disrupted and destroyed our ability to experience that peace and harmony and wholeness and abundance in every area of our life. So Jesus came, and through his life and his death and his resurrection, Jesus brings forgiveness and transformation, healing and wholeness to us and to the world so that he can make every, our lives and everything in the world just the way God always wanted to be, filled with peace and wholeness and abundance and harmony. But the promise of the gospel is that Jesus will do that fully, finally, and forever only when he returns. 
Jeff talked about this a couple of weeks ago, about the story of the Bible and how we're living in the chapter of the story called the church, where we live in between Jesus' death and resurrection and Jesus coming again. And we are now, we live in this land in between. Where yes, Jesus has already through his death and resurrection defeated the power of sin and pain in the world. Such that the world is slowly becoming more the way God would always want it to be. But it will not become that way until Jesus returns and he transforms all of creation. He roots out sin and pain forever when he comes again. And in the meantime, we live in the in-between of this paradox where Jesus has already brought us the cure for sin and pain, but he has not yet eradicated the disease. We have to learn to live with the expectation that life is going to be hard. In that sense, we need to become better Buddhists. (laughs) The first noble truth of Buddhism is life is suffering. That's what happens when you're a human being in this world. And they, they describe five forms of suffering. Birth is suffering, aging is suffering, sickness is suffering, the loss of love is suffering, and failure and disappointment is suffering. That's the expectation of life. Not to be like a downer, but that's what happens in this world. That's what James means. He's saying the same thing when he says, consider pure joy whenever you experience trials of many kinds. He doesn't say consider pure joy if ever you experience, as though you might not. No, no, he says consider pure joy whenever, every time. Because we have experienced and we do experience and we will experience pain in this world. Because that's just the kind of world the world is. It is a broken, fallen world that has not yet been fully redeemed by Jesus. We expect life to be hard, not just because that's the way the world is, but because that's the way Jesus is. Jesus came and he was born into poverty and his family thought he was insane. And he was rejected by the political structures and the religious leaders. And he was abandoned and betrayed by his friends. And he was stripped naked and hung in humiliation on a cross where he was tortured to death. That's what Jesus experienced in life. And Jesus says, a servant doesn't get to be higher than the master. If we're choosing to follow Jesus, we're going to do what Jesus did and experience what Jesus experienced. Life is going to be hard because we follow Jesus. It doesn't make it all rainbows and roses. It's not just the way the world is. It's not just because of who Jesus is. It's because there is an enemy that exists who wants to destroy anyone and anything that aligns with God's purposes of love. The enemy wants to discourage anybody from devoting their lives to following Jesus, and he will do anything to disrupt that movement, including throwing pain and sin and sickness and sadness into the world until people throw up their hands and say, how could there be a good and loving God when there's so much pain in the world, when there's so much pain in my life? Friends, I think we have to stop living as though the purpose of life is to be pain-free and comfortable and at ease. As though the expectation is that we would be healthy and wealthy all of the time. And we have to embrace the fact that life is hard. And the question isn't whether we will experience pain and suffering. The question is how will we respond when we do? And James says, consider it pure joy whenever you experience trials of many kinds. 
Because, this is verse 3, you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. The joy, the recognizing that these difficult seasons in life where we're being mugged by life, where our circumstances are putting the screws to us and testing the metal of our very character in those seasons of life that we consider it, James says, consider it the supreme opportunity to experience the work of God in your life. Because in the testing of faith, you develop perseverance. That word testing, it's a different word from the test before. This word testing is the word they used to use in the ancient world to talk about the process of refining gold. Because when you mine gold, you don't just walk out of the mine with gold bricks intact, right? You, you, you take a piece of rock that has gold embedded in it. And what do you do? You throw it in the furnace and you crank up the heat until everything melts and the gold sinks to the bottom and the impurities float to the top and then you scoop them all away and what you're left with is pure gold. The process of applying heat creates purity. James says it is the process of how you undergo those seasons of life that create the possibility for you to grow in perseverance, for you to grow in spirit, for you to grow in your determination, for you to grow in the grit in your faith, for you to hang in with God Through it all, it's in those seasons, James says, that your faith becomes strong. A couple years ago, I met with an orthopedic surgeon who told me that I have so much arthritis in my left knee. I mean, he said, there's no surgery that can be done. My knee is destroyed. And he looked at me in his office. He said, congratulations. He said, you've just retired from every sport that doesn't happen on a bike or in a pool. And kind of in the wake of that, I sort of, in it with a defeatist attitude, kind of gave up a bit on working out. And over the last couple of years, I've gained about you know, 15, 20 pounds, something like that. And so Krista finally looked at me a month or two ago, and she said, enough is enough. Get back to working out. Let's figure out what you can do. And so we, so we went back to a workout program that we used to do called P90X3. Now, one of the workouts in P90X3, in fact, the workout I have to do tomorrow morning, is a workout called Eccentric Upper. And basically, it's a weight-based upper body workout, arms, shoulders, you know, chest, back, the, the whole nine yards. It's an upper body workout, but it's very specifically designed. It's a workout that you do where you move the weight as slowly as you can. Because the host, the trainer in the workout program, Tony Horton, he says the, the lengthening of a muscle while under tension is where you get your strength gains. And the slower you move, the more muscle fibers are recruited in the motion and the greater your strength gains. He says, and that's why you picked up the weights in the first place, was for strength gain. In that workout, Tony Horton's formula is this. Time under pressure leads to strength gain. That's how you grow strong. And that's exactly what James is saying in this text. So don't be discouraged. Don't give up. I get that hard times are hard. 
but recognize with the joy of anticipation of what God is going to do, that it is also true that it is precisely during this season as you walk with Jesus faithfully that Jesus is going to make you strong. Time under tension, time under pressure is how you grow the strength of your faith. Nobody's faith grows in seasons that are pain-free, comfortable, and easy, period. But what that means is that we have to change our mindset of what it means to go through those seasons. It means we have to learn how to face and embrace and address the pain. See, because that's not our instinct. We've been taught that life is supposed to be the pursuit of happiness that comes through what happens to us. And so we should expect that life is pain-free and comfortable and easy. And so when it isn't, we get afraid of the pain and we run away from it as fast as we can. Right? We do things like numb the pain. We talked about addiction a month ago. About how addiction is born when an individual experiences pain and trauma beyond what they think they can bear and one bad decision about how they're going to numb the pain. That's why people turn to drugs and alcohol and sex and porn and shopping and anything that I can think of to make the pain go away even for a little bit. Or we repress the pain, we suppress it. We paste on a plasticky smile or a stiff upper lip and we tell people we're fine and we're going to be fine. We use trite cliches like God's got a purpose and we, or we laugh and joke and trivialize the pain or we do whatever we can to not actually have to look ourselves in the mirror and face the pain. Or we try to dig ourselves out of the hole by making bad decisions. Right? I've been in a bad relationship, so what do I do? I rebound with somebody that's not healthy for me. But they're there and available, and I can get back into a relationship. Or my marriage is going pretty tough, and so I have an affair. Or my marriage is going really bad, so let's have kids, right? Like, let's do something to try and fix the problem as fast as we can. And James says, no, no, no. If, if you're going to grow strong through the development of perseverance, you have to be willing to face and embrace and address the pain. You have to be willing to deal with it and not run away with it so that God can do the work that God wants to do through it. Because if you're willing to do that, God will change you. See, the whole thing about working out and getting strong and whatever, the point of working out is not to get strong. The point of working out is not to get ripped Though, as you can see, you know, the point of working out is not to get ripped. Do you think firefighters work out every day just so that they can do calendars? No. Firefighters work out every day. Why? So they can become the kind of people who can save lives. James says in chapter 1, verse 4, if you let perseverance finish its work, you will be mature and complete, lacking nothing. 
That the purpose of developing endurance, of being able to continue to be faithful day after day in your walk with Jesus. We've just been reading about this in this book that we're all reading together about the power of daily, moment by moment faithfulness in being devoted to Jesus. If you allow the perseverance of that faithfulness to settle in in your life, what will end up happening is through that faithfulness, God will make you mature and complete. God will lead you towards the goal of becoming the person he's created you to be. God will slowly be completing you, making you holy and whole, healthy and like Jesus, which in the scriptures is always, only, ever a life of love, of loving God with all that you are and all that you have and loving yourself as someone who knows they're loved by God just for being who they are and loving each other in relationships of mutual submission and together as a community, loving the world. This is what Jesus is doing in us. And he says, if you will make a commitment to faithfully be devoted to me, to walk with me through those times when you're getting mugged by life and your circumstances are putting the screws to you and testing the very metal of your character. If you will faithfully walk with me in perseverance through those seasons, I will guide you to the place where you are becoming the person of love that I've created you to be. And Jesus says there is nothing in the world that is better than living that life. In John chapter 10 verse 10 it says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. The enemy will use pain in your life to steal your faith in Jesus, to kill your confidence in God, to destroy any sense that you have that God is for you and he loves you. He will steal, kill, and destroy your faith through your experience of pain if you let him. But Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Jesus says, on the contrary, if you will walk with me in faithfulness through those seasons, I will build the strength of your perseverance and I will walk with you towards becoming the person of love that I've created you to be. And there is literally no better way to live life than that. That is a better way to live than the pain-free, comfortable, easy life that we all strive after. That's what Jesus wants for us. And that is better than the pursuit of happiness. Is the willingness to face and embrace and address the pain that we're experiencing in faithfulness with Jesus so that he can slowly transform us into the person he's created us to be and there is no better life than that one. So what does that mean? I think there's two groups of people here this morning. There are those who are not experiencing pain and those who are. And if you're here this morning and you are not in a season of pain in your life, be thankful because you will be. But ask yourself the question, why am I not experiencing pain right now? Is it because I have so prioritized living a pain-free, comfortable, easy life that I have run away from everything that might cause me pain and it's actually cost me in my discipleship with Jesus Christ? Have I made an idol of comfort? Ask yourself, am I avoiding my pain? Is there pain really there, but I am 
uh, numbing it or suppressing it or trying to dig my way out of it by making bad decisions? Am I uh, ignoring and avoiding the pain that exists? Or maybe you're just in a seasonal life that's not hard and good for you and, and God bless you. Who do you know that is in a season of life that's filled with pain that you've been avoiding because you don't really want their messiness and pain in your life. And what would it look like for you to come alongside of them, to enter into their pain? Not to fix it, not to solve their problem, not to come in with all sorts of pat answers and try cliches and tell them that God always has a purpose. That God is doing this to you for a reason. Just to, to come in and in love to be present and to walk with them in faithfulness with Jesus towards becoming the person that they always wanted to be so they can experience the joy of what it means to live the life that God has invited us into. And there's a community of people here who are in pain. And if that's you this morning, I'm sorry that this is your life. I genuinely am. I join you in praying that God would relieve the pain, that God would rescue from it, that God would make himself obvious in the midst of it. And honestly, I'm sorry that you had to sit through the sermon this morning because literally, I know this from experience, there is nothing worse than in the midst of your pain having somebody say, you know, God really wants to teach you a lesson in all of this. There's a silver lining to every cloud and all that garbage. And I didn't want any of this to feel like that. And I'm sorry if it did. Because you don't need in this season to be trying to figure out what God is teaching you or looking for the grand lesson that God has for you or the change that God wants. That's not your job. Your job in this season of pain is to walk in faithfulness day after day, moment by moment with Jesus Christ. Surround yourself with people who will help you carry the pain and journey with Jesus towards wherever this story is going for you. And someday down the road, believe me, you will look back on this season and you will see Jesus in the middle of it. And you'll be able to see what God has done in you through it. Even if you never understand the pain. Because here's the thing. This is what God does. God uses everything. He's not doing this to you to teach you a lesson. But God will, if we let him, take the circumstances of our lives and transform it into something beautiful. To do the new thing that Jesus longs to do in our lives. The thing that will fill our hearts and lives with joy if we'll only let him.